You're listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now bring you Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman, and welcome again to Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the completion, the fulfillment, the full realization of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and its sacraments. Um, this next weekend, I will actually be uh, giving a retreat in Scotland, in the highlands of Scotland, at a very lovely uh, retreat house, prayer house of prayer retreat house up in the hills there. And the theme of the retreat will be the mysteries of the rosary illumined with a light from Judaism, a kind of Old Testament light shining on the mysteries of the rosary. So I thought that for today's show... I would talk about a little bit of those connections between some of the mysteries of the rosary and uh, salvation, the economy of salvation before the incarnation, essentially Judaism and the Old Testament. So, and I thought I'd focus on the luminous mysteries. So that's my plan for today. And we'll see how it goes. You can let me know if you want how it goes. But that's my plan. So why don't I just start at the beginning with the first of the luminous mysteries, which is the baptism of Jesus. The five luminous mysteries, I, I think we all know, were introduced into the rosary by Saint Pope John Paul II. And those five mysteries are the, um, in, in order, they're the baptism in the Jordan, the wedding at Cana, the proclamation of the gospel, the transfiguration, and the institution of the Eucharist. And perhaps coincidentally, perhaps not, all five of those mysteries have a very deep connection, actually, with the Old Testament and with uh, either the way, depending on how you want to look at it, Judaism or pre-incarnational economy of salvation. So starting with the uh, baptism in the Jordan, first of all, the uh, baptism, baptism itself, uh, since the earliest of the church fathers, has been seen as hearkening back to the Exodus, the Jews' flight from Egypt, from when they were uh, slaves of the Pharaoh in Egypt. And one of the church fathers, St. Cyril of Jerusalem, wrote in uh, it's his first lecture on the mysteries. I'll, I'll read you a short passage from his catechesis on the meaning of the Exodus from Egypt in the light of Christianity, and it'll show very clearly the relationship between baptism and the exodus from Egypt. Let me just say, as a little bit of a backdrop, the exodus from Egypt, the, the Jews' liberation from slavery in Egypt through the miracles of God um, you know, wrought by Moses, is the absolute cornerstone of Judaism. It is the, it's the beginning of Judaism in most ways, and it is the central event in Judaism to the point where the Passover Seder, which Jews even today, 4,000 years later celebrate, 3,000 years later celebrate, is a reenactment of the Exodus from Egypt. Uh, the Jewish liturgy harkens back continually to the Exodus from Egypt. And in fact, the command to memorialize the Exodus from Egypt by celebrating the Passover is such a serious command in the Old Testament that Jews actually are cut off from the Jewish people, are excommunicated if they fail to celebrate the Passover. And according to Jewish theology, that excommunication comes with losing one's share in the world to come, in other words, losing one's salvation. So it's very, very central. So let me read from St. Cyril of Jerusalem on the uh, Exodus from Egypt. Let us now teach you the effect wrought upon you on that evening of your baptism. When Pharaoh, that most bitter and cruel tyrant, was oppressing the free and high-born people of the Hebrews, God sent Moses to bring them out of the evil bondage of the Egyptians. Then the doorposts were anointed with the blood of a lamb, that the destroyer might flee from the houses which had the sign of the blood, and the Hebrew people were marvelously delivered. The enemy, however, after their rescue, pursued after them and saw the sea wondrously parted for them, Nevertheless, he went on following close in their footsteps and was all at once overwhelmed and engulfed in the Red Sea. Now, turn from the old to the new, from the figure to the reality. 
There we have Moses sent from God to Egypt. Here Christ sent forth from his father into the world. There that Moses might lead forth an afflicted people out of Egypt. Here that Christ might rescue those who are oppressed in the world under sin. There the blood of a lamb was the spell against the destroyer. Here the blood of the lamb without blemish, Jesus Christ, is the charm to scare evil spirits. There, the tyrant was pursuing that ancient people even to the sea. And here, the daring and shameless spirit, the author of evil, was following thee even to the very streams of salvation. The tyrant of old was drowned in the sea, and this present one disappears in the water of salvation. End of the passage from St. Cyril of Jerusalem in his first lecture on the mysteries. So you see what's going on here. The entire story of the Exodus from Egypt was a prefigurement, was a picture in advance of the story of salvation through Christ. By the way, in Jewish theology, even today, among the Jews, the Exodus from Egypt is still understood as messianic. In other words, that it's a picture of the liberation to come when the Messiah comes. And we see that even more clearly as Christians. That is, was a picture of when the Messiah did come. That is, salvation through Jesus. The slavery of the Jews in Egypt to the Pharaoh was a picture of mankind's slavery to Satan. Um, their, their escape by passing through the waters of the Red Sea was a picture of the Christian's escape from the, the bonds that bind him to Satan by passing through the waters of baptism. The, the Jews uh, wandering through the 40 years in the desert on their way to the promised land was a picture of the Christian's passage wandering through the desert of this life, so to speak, on the way to the true promised land, which is not the earthly Jerusalem, but the heavenly Jerusalem. And what nourished, what sustained the Jews during their 40 years passage through the desert? Um, manna, the miraculous bread from heaven which is a picture, of course, of the Eucharist, the true miraculous bread from heaven that sustains the Christian in their passage through this life on earth on the way to the heavenly Jerusalem. And this equation between the manna in the wilderness and the Eucharist was made by none other than Jesus himself in John 6. He says, uh, more or less, he says, your forefathers ate the manna in the wilderness, but they died nonetheless. I give you the true bread from heaven, he who eats from this true bread from heaven shall never die, and that bread is my flesh. So we see uh, two things in this. We see that, of course, that the entire story of the Exodus from Egypt was a prefigurement of our uh, salvation through Christ, and the central event of that flight from the Pharaoh in Egypt, the passing through the waters of the Red Sea, was a picture of baptism. So we see how deeply rooted in the Old Testament, in pre-Jesus pre salvation history, the idea of baptism is from that perspective. I hope this makes sense. I can't tell because I'm just on the radio. Um, now, there's, the, there's not only this Old Testament or pre-Christian meaning to baptism, so to speak, but there's also the fact that uh, purification by water was central in the Old Testament law as it applied to the Jews for their ritual purity. For instance, uh, cleansing by water or immersion in water was required to establish ritual purity. In Leviticus chapter 8, Aaron and his son's uh, induction into the priesthood was marked by their need to immerse in, in water. In the temple times, the priests as well as every Jew who wanted to enter the house of God, the temple in Jerusalem, had first to uh, immerse in water. Uh, on Yom Kippur, the holiest of all days to the Old Testament Jews, to the Jews today too, by the way, the high priest was allowed entrance into the Holy of Holies, the innermost chamber of the temple, um, only following immersion in water. Um, the I can go on and on and on, but basically in the book of Leviticus and the book of Numbers, there are any number of references to the requirement to establish ritual purity or reestablish ritual purity after defilement through purification by water or immersion in water. Some of those uh, appear in Leviticus chapter 14, Leviticus chapter 15, Leviticus 16, Leviticus 17, and Numbers uh, 19. 
Now, uh, this use of water for ritual purification and even baptism itself still exists in Judaism and existed in Judaism at the time of Jesus, very interestingly. Uh, at the time of Jesus, conversion to Judaism, because in those days, we see this from the book of Acts, many uh, Gentiles, many pagans were converting to Judaism. If you remember in the book of Acts, the very first Pentecost, the book of Acts says, now in Jerusalem there were uh, 3,000 uh, Jews and proselytes, that is, converts to Judaism, who were assembled on that first uh, Pentecost in order to, to hear Peter's, um, uh, Peter's sermon, which, which brought about their desire for baptism. So we know that even at the time of Jesus, that baptism as well as circumcision was required for uh, non-Jews to become Jews. We know this because there are debates on the subject of baptism recorded in the Talmud between two schools of rabbis who predated Jesus, or actually were contemporaries of Jesus. Shammai and Hillel were both contemporaries of Jesus, and they de their debate that's recounted in the Talmud was about the need for uh, ritual baptism in order to convert to Judaism. Um, so uh, let me just stop a moment and, and reflect on what this means. What this means is that when John the Baptist was baptizing, and even more significantly, when when the apostles were baptizing in order to bring people into the church, that act of baptism wasn't a new introduction, so to speak, that came from Jesus and Christianity. It was new in, in its effectiveness. Uh, in other words, this, the sacramental effectiveness was entirely new. But the ritual wasn't new. The ritual was simply a continuation of a ritual which was already present in Judaism for conversion into Judaism. I think this is interesting. Um, and this need for baptism in order to convert to Judaism didn't end with Christianity, but it continues uh, today. And Maimonides, who codified Jewish law in the 12th century, basically... Uh, you can think of it as, um, you know, the, the code of canon law for Judaism that he wrote down, summed up the Jewish tradition concerning converts to Judaism as follows. And now I'll read from that. So this is a quote. By three things did Israel enter into the covenant, by circumcision, by baptism, and by sacrifice. Circumcision was in Egypt, as it is written, no uncircumcised person shall eat thereof. That's a reference to the Passover uh, lamb, by the way. Baptism was in the wilderness just before giving of the law, and sacrifice um, was introduced uh, later in Exodus. That's also interesting, by the way, that baptism was introduced into Judaism in the wilderness, in other words, following the Jews' passage through the Red Sea. So we see, even within Judaism, this linkage between baptism and the Jews' passage through the Red Sea. Um, and then I'll uh, just uh, re return to uh, Maimonides' uh, text there. Uh, I'll just kind of back up a little bit. Circumcision was in Egypt, as it is written, no uncircumcised person shall eat thereof. Baptism was in the wilderness just before giving of the law, as it is written, sanctify them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes. And sacrifice, as it is said, quote, and he sent young men of the children of Israel, which offered burnt offerings. When a Gentile is willing to enter the covenant, he must be circumcised and be baptized and bring a sacrifice. And at this time, when there is no sacrifice, they must be circumcised and baptized. And when the temple shall be built, they are to bring a sacrifice. The Gentile that is made a proselyte and the slave that is made free, behold, he is like a child newborn. So you see what Maimonides is saying is that in the days of the temple, when there still was animal sacrifice, a convert had to be circumcised, had to be baptized, and had to offer sacrifice. Nowadays, when there's no temple, there's no sacrifice. So a convert still has to be circumcised and be baptized. And interestingly, Maimonides uh, concludes by saying, when the Gentile is converted... Uh, he is like a child newborn. In other words, when the Gentile pa becomes baptized, 
in Jewish theology, it's extremely parallel to the truth that we know in Christianity. That is, he is washed free of original sin. He is a blank slate from the point. He's a clean slate, I should say, from the point of view of uh, sin and original sin. I'll make a little personal aside here, which is that uh, I was only baptized in my 30s. Uh, as a convert from Judaism, of course, into the Catholic Church. And it's a great luxury because um, my baptism washed away both my original sin and also all the actual sin of those first 35 years or so of my life. And in fact, uh, sacramentally, there's no need, there was no need even to confess the sins that uh, I was guilty of before baptism because they were washed away by baptism. So I too was like a child newborn, so to say. And I'll just close this little discussion of baptism in Judaism and in the Old Testament by uh, pointing out an irony, so to speak, because there's a passage from the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament that is used to explain why uh, baptism, why immersion in water is required for conversion to Judaism. And as I read this passage, I think it'll be evident to all of us as Christians that this passage is actually referring to Christianity, although, of course, Jews quite naturally think it's referring to uh, conversion to Judaism. So here's the passage from Ezekiel chapter 36. For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. Uh, That's from Ezekiel 36. And many of those passages are repeated in the New Testament, especially in the epistles. Um, in reference, of course, to salvation through Jesus, through um, or in reference to conversion to Christianity. Uh, I will cleanse you. I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will cleanse you from all your impurities. I will g- give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I believe that appears uh, verbatim in, in one of the epistles. And I will put my spirit in you. That's, of course, the Holy Spirit that is put in us at baptism. So that is my um, short discussion of of baptism in Judaism and the Old Testament. Um, I will point out again that this is a a call-in radio show. So if anyone wishes to call in, the number here is 866-333-6279. Now I will go ahead to the next luminous mystery, which is the wedding at Cana. Uh, which is perhaps a little bit more complex a discussion to talk about the, the um, transformation. Actually, what I want to talk about is the transformation of marriage, which took place with the incarnation of Christ, with the wedding at Cana itself, with Christianity, how the very nature of marriage was transformed from what it meant in Judaism to what it means in Christianity, what it meant in the Old Testament uh, to what it means in the New Testament and what it means today. And that transformation from the uh, pre-Christian Jewish uh, meaning of marriage to the Christian meaning of marriage, one can see, one can actually see it as taking place at the wedding at Cana. Uh, I, I'm not saying that's t- uh, theologically precise, but one can certainly see the wedding at Cana being a picture of that transformation of marriage from its Old Testament Jewish form to its New Testament Christian form. So let me flesh that out a little bit. Uh, first of all, Judaism, excuse me, marriage in Judaism is not a sacrament. It is a contract. In a sense, it's a simple contract. Um, it is uh, originally, and we see this in the Old Testament itself, and I'll point to some passages a little later, uh, it is a contract that's sealed by the marital act itself. And we see this in several places in the Old Testament where the husband-to-be 
engages in the marital act with the wife to be and that in affects the marriage and that's the only uh ceremony so to speak that affects the marriage although usually was followed by a kind of a wedding feast a celebratory feast now today in Judaism and in fact uh even back millennia in in Judaism um there was a third element in other words it's not just the marital act that affects the marriage and the wedding feast that celebrates it afterwards there's a third element which is a formal contract which is known as the ketubah um which is uh even today it's uh universal in Jewish marriages and it is a contract between the husband and the wife it's actually a contract that the husband writes that guarantees a certain um a certain number of benefits to the bride to the wife to be now where this came about is because before there was a marriage contract before the ketubah was introduced there was a bride price it was called the mohar which was the price that the groom paid for the bride to the bride's parents uh the problem with that system was that at the age in at which the groom wanted to get married let's say it was you know probably 15 or 16 or 17 in those days uh he had not had ch- a chance to save up very much money for this bride price so the ketubah was introduced as a kind of alternative where rather than giving the money up front so to speak before he can be married married because i might require waiting 10 years until he saves up the money um there is this contract where essentially it substitutes for the bride price and it says that should the husband divorce the wife she is entitled to a certain amount of money so it's kind of like a promissory note for the bride price um so uh the ketubah is in essence a contract that formalizes the various requirements that Jewish law requires of a Jewish husband in relation to his wife it uh it asserts that the husband will provide to his wife three major things clothing food and conjugal relations and it specifies the price that he will pay her in the case of a divorce um and again as i said i mean if you google ketubah you'll see dozens of uh beautifully uh calligraphy you know beautiful uh marriage contracts in beautiful hebrew calligraphy that people still use today to sort of commem- well not only to commemorate their marriage in Judaism but actually as a as a um intrinsic component of their marriage in Judaism although of course it's somewhat symbolic today um the uh so that that is was all by way of saying that marriage in Judaism was is not a lifelong covenantal relationship it is a uh it is a contract it's almost like a business contract which can be terminated at will particularly by the husband absolutely terminated at will and uh, you know with the payment of a predetermined alimony essentially now divorce is built into Jewish marriage the ability to to be divorced to get a divorce it's trivial as i said on the part of the husband uh, under Jewish law a man can divorce his wife for any or no reason and the talmud specifically says that a man can divorce his wife because she spoiled his dinner or because he finds another woman more attractive and the woman's consent to the divorce is not required so we see in some sense how light a matter marriage is at least uh legally within Judaism the um uh the uh, according to Jewish law the divorce is co- accomplished simply by writing a bill of divorce and handing it to the wife and sending her away and the husband doesn't even have to do this in person he can use a messenger to hand his wife the divorce and send her away so just uh, just contrast this um uh view of marriage um almost i don't want to say trivial trivialization of marriage but certainly it's not a sacramental view of marriage it's certainly not a uh, mingling of two souls for all eternity or until death by the way um 
uh, and now, of course, the contrast to Christian marriage is evident because Jesus made it very clear that uh, Moses gave the Jews divorce because of the hardness of their hearts, but that it wasn't God's intention, and it is no longer the case within Christianity, and marriage is absolutely indissoluble. Once the sacrament of marriage takes place, and note that it's a sacrament in Christianity, it's not a sacrament in Judaism, it's just a contract. Uh, it's a sacrament in Christianity. What's a sacrament? A sacrament is the use of material things to bring about a spiritual transformation, a, a spiritual effect, a heavenly effect, so to speak. So the relatively minor material elements of the marriage, in uh, the act of getting married that we're all familiar with, um, actually affects a spiritual truth, the union of those two people, and to some extent the union of those two souls. Now, I'll take a little bit of a tangent here. Anne Catherine Emmerich, this is not a dogma that I'm talking about. Anne Catherine Emmerich, I mean, up till now it's been dogma, but what I'm about to say is not dogma. Anne Catherine Emmerich is a... Um, uh, she's, uh, she's a um, blessed now, I believe her canonization actually is already scheduled. She was a mystic visionary nun of the 19th century, and she had lots of visions of the life of Christ, including witnessing his sermons and witnessing his, his preaching. And she recounts uh, among these visions of Jesus being challenged about the absence of divorce and what he said was you know take a bowl and uh, fill it you know fill it with milk and pour some water in it and stir it together now can you separate the water from the milk and he used that as a as a as a metaphor for the fact that when two souls are joined in marriage it's inseparable there can be no divorce because they are united in such a way that's inseparable and I believe that, I think it's St. Paul in one of the letters, makes a reference when he is condemning fornication. He says, essentially, why would you do that? Why would you want your soul to be joined with the soul of a prostitute? So we see that the meaning of marriage is entirely different in Christianity. It's been elevated. It's been spiritualized. One can say almost that it's been, um, been uh, divinized. And... That actually brings us to the wedding in Cana, because, um, okay, I'll back up a half a step in order to move forward. What happened with the incarnation? Divinity flowed into humanity. In the person of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ was, is truly God and will be truly God for all eternity, but in the Incarnation, he also became truly man and will be truly man for all eternity. He is one person with two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. When the Incarnation took place, human nature and divine nature were merged for the first time and for the last time. They flowed together. So they are now, they are now united in a way that they had never been before. The, you can say the incarnation was a divinization of mankind. It was an elevation of human nature with a, a strong component of divine nature. Now, with that as a backdrop, think of what happened to marriage. What happened to marriage in the transformation from Judaism into Christianity was that marriage was divinized, that the, um, the, the human aspect of marriage had this eternal or at least divine aspect flow into it where it was no longer a human activity, but it was a sacrament. It was a heavenly activity. It was a spiritual activity that transformed the very nature of marriage. Now, uh, the, now think of the, Mary, the wedding at Cana. What happened at the wedding of Cana? Jesus turned water into wine. Water has always been a symbol of the human or the material, and wine has always been a symbol of the spiritual or the divine. Think of the water and wine being mingled at every Mass. What happens when the priest pours a little bit of water into the... Uh, chalice of wine before the transfiguration what is the prayer that he says 
He says, quote, By the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity, the divinity of Christ, who humbled himself to share in our humanity. In other words, the wine at Mass, the wine in that chalice, is a symbol of the divinity of Christ. And the water that's poured in is a symbol of our humanity, which was merged with the divinity of Christ. So, so think of the wedding at Cana. The, the transformation of the water into wine is a picture of the elevation of the uh, human nature of marriage into the divine nature of marriage. And how did it come about? It came about through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary when she basically uh, set the ball rolling to have Jesus turn the water into wine. So just pause. Think how incredibly beautiful that is. Every sacramental marriage, every spiritual marriage in all of Christianity has as its godmother, so to speak, the Blessed Virgin Mary, who interceded in order to effect this transformation of human marriage into semi-divine marriage. So we all owe, we all owe what marriage truly is to the Blessed Virgin Mary. And how appropriate is that? I mean, you know, she's our heavenly mother and she not only arranges our lives and our marriages, but she actually, she actually was, um, I don't know how to put it, precipitated the entire elevation of marriage into its spiritual sacramental state. So with that, I usually take a short break about halfway through the show. We are at that point. So I will take that short break. You're listening to Roy Shulman on Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. And I'll be back in a few moments. Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now return to Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Shulman. 
Hello again. Welcome back to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or, seen the other way around, that celebrates the completion, the fulfillment of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and its sacraments. We've been talking today about some of the Jewish roots, so to speak, or background of uh, some of the mysteries of the Rosary, particularly of the luminous mysteries of the Rosary. And before the break, I talked about the um, Jewish background of baptism and of the wedding at Cana. And now I'll go on with the next uh, mystery of luminous mystery of the Rosary, the proclamation of the gospel. But anyway, uh, back to the mysteries of the Rosary and the Jewish background of them and the proclamation of the gospel. I, I want to talk at least about one aspect of the proclamation of the gospel, which is we see it both in the life of Jesus, and we certainly see it also in the uh, progress of Christianity by his disciples and apostles after he died, which is that a intrinsic aspect to the proclamation of the gospel is, in fact, uh, miracles, and in particular, miraculous healings. Jesus very frequently uh, healed people miraculously. He used it, if I may use such a coarse term, in order to uh, establish his street credibility, establish his credentials, and also just to draw people, frankly, um, to, uh, to him, because lots of people came to him. Many came to him because they were enthusiastic about who he was and what he said, but some just came to him because they were very sick and were seeking healing. And he did not, um, you know, he did not look down his nose at that either. He, re- he received them and he made use of their desire for healing in order to also excite them about the content of his message. And that didn't end with him. It, it was seen, we see it in the New Testament with the apostles also. Um, and I'll introduce that with a short reading from uh, chapter 3 of Acts. And it's the story of Peter and John healing a man lame from birth um, at the gate of the temple. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those who entered the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked for alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him with John and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention upon them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but I give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Now, we see this over and over again in uh, in the New Testament. We see it over and over again, of course, in the life of Jesus. We see it over and over again in uh, the travels of uh, Paul and of the early apostles. And uh, dare I say it, we even see it today. I think we're all familiar with the medical, medically miraculous healings at Lourdes. Um, and uh, certainly there are many, many other uh, Catholic, uh, charismatic prayer contexts in which many people report miraculous healings. If I may say so, I think I have benefited from at least two that I can identify uh, over the course of my uh, charismatic Catholic activities. So um, it's not something that ended, you know, in the days of the apostles, but it certainly was there in the days of the apostles. Um, and it's very interesting that this miraculous healing that was part of the proclamation of the gospel in Jesus' life, part of the proclamation of the gospel in the life of the apostles, and part of the proclamation of the gospel even today. And by the way, um, you know, obviously I'm very interested in the conversion of the Jews. I'm also very interested in the conversion of the Muslims. And it's uh, very frequent, actually, that the um, conversion of um, Jews and Muslims comes about uh, in the context of miraculous healings. So anyway, so it's interesting to me that the Talmud itself, of course, the Talmud is um, the uh, ri- writing down of the Jewish oral tradition, which includes some historical 
information as well as a lot of uh, laws and rules and theological principles and so forth, that the Talmud confirms that the disciples of Jesus were able to miraculously heal. And I will read a passage from the Babylonian Talmud that uh, gives evidence of this. Um, No man should have any dealings with the Christian apostates. Uh, There's a Hebrew word there, menim, which in the Talmud is used to refer, it means heretics, but in the Talmud it generally refers to heretics in the sense of Jews who have become Christians. So no man should have any dealings with the menim, nor is it allowed to be healed by them even for an hour's life. It once happened to Ben-Dama that he was bitten by a serpent, and Jacob of Capharnaum, a disciple of Jesus, came to heal him in the name of Yeshua ben Pantar, that is, in the name of Jesus. But Rabbi Ishmael did not let him. He said, You are not permitted, Ben-Dama. He answered, I will bring you proof that he may heal me. But he had no opportunity to bring proof. His soul departed and he died. Whereupon Rabbi Ishmael exclaimed, Happy art thou, Ben-Dama, for you were pure in body and soul, and thy soul likewise left you in purity, nor have you transgressed. One having dealings with the Menim may be drawn after them. So what this passage recounts is um, uh, the Talmud acknowledges that there were these disciples of Jesus running around, one of them, who was actually from Capernaum, um, came to heal a Jewish man who was at the point of dying because he had been bit by a serpent. And um, he refused to let himself be healed in the name of Jesus. And this is recounted in the Talmud as evidence of this man's purity and sanctity because even to save his life, he would not let himself be healed in the name of Jesus. Note that the formula that these disciples of Jesus were using, as recounted in the Talmud, to do these healings are uh, be healed in the name of Jesus. We will speak to thee in the name of Jesus. The exact same phrase as we heard from Acts chapter 3, when Peter said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. So, Um, The proclamation of the gospel was and is and presumably always will be associated by miracles of healings, um, as attested to even by the Jewish Talmud. Again, I hope that made sense. Now, um, there are two other aspects of the proclamation of the gospel that have a uh, Jewish connection or an Old Testament connection. One I spoke about um, at length uh, last week, actually, which is the number of parables in the Gospels that are explicitly discussing the relationship between Jew and Gentile in the church. So I won't repeat those, um, but I'll just refer you to last week's uh, uh, program, I guess. But it's very interesting to me that Jesus over and over and over again pointed out this dynamic that essentially he first came to his own people, the Jews, They rejected him, and then, in some sense, please forgive me, but I'm just paraphrasing the parables, God got disgusted with the Jews and turned to the Gentiles, who then gave Jesus a much warmer reception. And the same um, structure of going first to the Jews and then to the uh, being rejected by the Jews and going to the Gentiles is reflected in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, we can see the elder son who was always in the father's house as the representing the Jewish people. The prodigal son who lived a life of dissipation and sinfulness and even a life among pigs, which of course is totally forbidden in Judaism as the Gentiles. But in the conversion of the Gentiles in the prodigal son's return, he actually exhibits much more pleasingness to God, pleasingness to the father than the elder son who's kind of up on his high horse and resentful all the time. Another parallel is in Matthew 20, the vineyard workers who were hired throughout the day 
and the ones who were working from the beginning of the day expected to be paid more and were resentful that the ones who were hired at the end of the day should get the same wage. Again, we can see the vineyard workers who were working from the beginning of the day, like the elder son, the Jews, who were thought they were always working for God, and then the Gentiles come in at the last minute, and the Jews are up on their high horse and kind of resentful at these Johnny come lately so they should be accepted on an equal basis. So we can see that parable as, as reflecting the dynamic between Jew and Gentile in the church. Um, the two sons, the good son and the bad son, again, same thing. The um, one son who says he will go out and work, do the work the father wants, but then doesn't. And the other son who starts out saying no, but then does the work. And which one was the good son? The one who started out refusing but did the work is obviously the good son. And again, that's a picture of the Gentiles versus the Jews who began by saying that they would do what God wanted, but then, but then failed to in their, um, anyway, I'm just talking through these parables, so don't blame me. I'm not anti-Semitic. I'm anything but. Anyway, also the vineyard leased to tenants who killed the son of the owner. I, uh, again, the, um, the, the tenants who who the king entrusted or the owner entrusted the vineyard to uh, were the Jews, and they turned around and you know killed the representatives of the owner who came to to um, you know collect collect his share, and that was the prophets. And then the owner will get mad at them and will do away with them and will give the vineyard to other tenants who will pay the due, and that of course being the Gentiles. And finally, the marriage feast in Matthew 22, uh, to whom, uh, you know, where the, where the king initially invited, um, you know, the, the, the first round of guests, but the first round of guests came up with excuses and they were too busy to come. So the king got very mad at them and just said, I invite everyone off the street. Again, that first set of guests can be seen as the Jews, the king, of course, as God. Uh, the marriage feast, of course, uh, the, the groom being Jesus marrying the church. Um, and then the, uh, the second set of guests who did come, who were just pulled in off the street, were the Gentiles. Over and over again, we see this in the Gospels, this dynamic between Jew and Gentile. I wasn't going to talk about that, but uh, I did talk about that. So uh, I, I give a much fuller explanation of all of those parables in last week's show, if you want to if you want to um, go back to the podcast. The final aspect of the proclamation of the gospel that I will uh, mention for its Jewish connection is that we know uh, from the Catechism of the Council of Trent, that's the 16th century, quote, the final judgment, the general judgment, that's at the end of time, will be preceded by three principal signs. The preaching of the gospel throughout the world, a falling away from the faith, and the coming of the Antichrist. So the Catechism of the Council of Trent says there are three signs which will precede the end of the world, the second coming. The preaching of the gospel throughout the world, the great apostasy, which is the general falling away from the faith, and the coming of the Antichrist. And the new catechism, as a fourth, in paragraph 674, it says, the glorious Messiah's coming is suspended at every moment of history until his recognition by all Israel. In other words, there's a fourth sign that will have to precede the second coming, which is the conversion of the Jews. So um, maybe I'll actually be ending, wrapping up the show on that, but, but just think about this for a moment. Um, has the gospel been preached throughout the world? Um, one could make a pretty good argument that it has been. Certainly it's closer to it now than it's ever been before with radio and television and the Internet. There are no longer large regions of the world that haven't had an opportunity to hear the gospel. And especially with radio and satellite TV and the Internet, the gospel has penetrated into, for instance, uh, China and the Muslim world, where uh, before this technology, which really only developed in the last 20 or 30 years, it hadn't been able to because the powers that be were able to keep it out. So... One could see that sign as um, in the process of being fulfilled. Uh, falling away from the faith, you know, I leave that to your judgment, but Europe used to be the Holy Roman Empire, and now the Constitution of Europe won't even acknowledge Christianity in any way, shape, or form. Um, so, you know, maybe we do see a widespread falling away from the faith. One can also think of the uh, very small percentage of Catholics who 
who uh, go to Sunday Mass or even believe in the real presence in the Eucharist. And uh, the coming of the Antichrist, we all have our candidates for who the Antichrist might be or who he might look like. So I will not uh, tread on in those very dangerous waters right now. And the fourth, the um, conversion of the Jews, which um, I think one could argue is underway now like never before, and the phenomenon of Messianic Judaism, which is actually huge around the world and huge in Israel and huge in the United States, and only emerged for the first time in the late 1960s. So, um, you know, maybe we can look at the proclamation of the gospel throughout the world as suggestive that we may be entering into the last phase of salvation history. And, of course, that's why I do this and have this show, is to encourage prayer and caring about the conversion of the Jews, because the conversion of the Jews also has to precede the second coming and uh, we know from the Gospels, we're supposed to pray, Lord Jesus, come in glory. Lord Jesus, come again. Maranatha, Jesus. So if we're going to say Maranatha, Jesus, Jesus, come again, we also ought to have a heart for the conversion of the Jews, because as that uh, the Catechism, paragraph 674 says, he can't come until there's a conversion of the Jews. So with that, let me um, leave you with an encouragement to uh, perhaps think about and maybe even pray about whether you're called to pray for the conversion of the Jews and certainly have a heart for the conversion of the Jews because we know as Catholics, um, you know, the joy and the relationship with God and the peace and the fulfillment that comes through being in a state of grace and the sacraments of the Catholic Church. And we also should know as Catholics the peace and joy and love that comes from a lively relationship with the Blessed Virgin Mary. And these are things which our Jewish brethren are deprived of because they haven't received the gift of faith. And uh, the gift of faith is a grace, and grace comes from prayer and the offering up of suffering. So with that, let me just encourage us all to pray about whether we should pray and offer up our sufferings for the conversion of the Jews so that the Lord Jesus may come again in glory. So with that, I will leave you for today. You've been listening to Roy Showman on Radio Maria. The show is Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism. And I hope you join us again next week. Same time, same place. Bye for now.